But the cumulative effect of all that training can, I think, and the doctors think, can be really, you know, catastrophic. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becky, oh, well placed. Come on, Jake. Come on, Jake. It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. Since 1972-ish, there's a lot of mythology around this topic, uh, Nathan's hot dog eating contest has been held on Coney Island to celebrate Independence Day, even this year, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Seeing people dip buns in water and put hot dogs in their mouth in rapid-fire fashion has always generated a a lot of questions for me, Uh, a lot of questions that ultimately led me to this conclusion. I need to bring a retired competitive eater onto the podcast. Enter Tim Janis, perhaps better known on the competitive eating circuit as Eater X. He had a pretty incredible career during his time as a professional competitive eater. Uh, In 2009, he became just the third person ever to eat 50 or more hot dogs at Nathan's. Janis finished in second a couple times to the legend Joey Chestnut at the event. He also set world records back in the day for amount of burritos, buffalo wings, tiramisu, and several other food items consumed. In 2016, though, he retired. Obviously, we'll get to the reasons he decided to walk away, but I can tell you right now it's uh, some really serious stuff. The dark side of competitive eating, it can be hard to, to wrap our heads around. Now, maybe the first of, of many questions to address here, considering what this podcast tries to focus on is competitive eating a sport i've never cared whether people think it is um because i understand it occupies a weird you know kind of a weird place on the in the debate of whether it's a sport you know it's not really that physical although at the same time eating and digesting is physical but it's not like you're you know you're breaking a sweat unless it's hot outside it might not be anything close to soccer or basketball. But, you know, then you got motorsports and horse racing. They're considered sports. And, uh, you know, it seems to me like a horse is the one that does all the, all the work in a horse race. And a car isn't really, you know, uh, athletic equipment. So so I don't know. I mean, it's um, I've never minded if people wanted to call it a sport, but I've never cared if they didn't want to grant it that respect. To me, it's just something, you know, it's a competition and uh, – and that was, that was what I really considered it. You know, it's a competition like playing a game or playing a sport, but it's, it's not really anything specific. You do train for competitive eating a lot. It is a race. It's on ESPN after all. But whatever, this is what Janice has settled on. I would say it's kind of like a platypus, you know, it's like, it's a ma- like, that's a mammal, but it doesn't really have anything in common with most mammals, you know? <laughs> so... I have a feeling that I might not be the only one out there that's thought to themselves, how do you even get started in this? How do you become a competitive eater? And for Janice, competitive eating came into his life in a really serendipitous way. You grew up in Connecticut, if Wikipedia is not wrong, which it could be. Correct. How did you get your start in competitive eating? Were you just a kid that loved to jam things in your mouth or... You know, I always had a good appetite, and uh, 
I enjoyed food. I enjoyed that feeling of fullness and people kind of encouraged, you know, if I wanted second or thirds, they, you know, my family encouraged that. So, um, I always thought I could eat a lot and I, um, but there weren't really any contests when I was growing up, um, except for, you know, there might be like a, at school, like a pie eating contest in high school, like hands free style, but that's not really a test of eating ability. So I moved to New York in my early 20s. And a few years later, I first heard about uh, major league eating, it was called the International Federation of Competitive Eating at the time. And uh, I just thought, man, that's something I can do. And I, and I wasn't sure I could do it. I just had a hunch that I could. And so I, I signed up for a contest, I was looking for just a fun day away from work, because I didn't like my job. Um, I was day trading stocks and, um, I really could have used a vacation, but I was too poor to afford one at the time. So I thought, well, this would be like a vacation if I just go and do this and I don't go to work and I have this thing to look forward to for a few days or a few weeks. And, uh, so that became my vacation for a day. And I went to the contest and I just didn't know what I was doing. There wasn't a lot of information back then about how to train or prepare. So I was guessing and I didn't guess very well. And I went there and I, I didn't even realize how hard you have to try to eat a lot of food quickly. I thought if I just ate steadily for 12 minutes mm. that I would do well. And it turned out that you actually have to try to eat quickly. And if you don't, you just do okay. And so I just did okay, but not great. And uh, I had so much fun though that day that I thought, well, I should do this again. And I'm going to take what I learned today and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to not only try to have fun again, but I'm also going to try to do better. And so that's how it began for me. It began as a sort of like, just take one day, try it out. And then, oh, I like that. I'll try it again. And I got a little bit better each time and I had fun each time. And so that one day became, you know, 12 years or so. What were you eating in that first competition? I was doing corned beef and cabbage for St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) And which is, it was actually kind of, you know, pretty good. I didn't know if I liked it, but until I got there, but it was pretty good. So it sounds like heading into it, there were no specific goals. Like you said, it kind of was this uh, vacation, which you might be one of the only people in the world to describe a competitive eating contest as a a vacation. It's it's like uh, the buffet part of a a cruise, I think. (laughs) Um, So when for you do you feel like you kind of maybe started, you said, you know, one day became 12 years. When did you kind of decide to take it more seriously? When did you come up with the name Eater X and develop a, a brand or a lifestyle around it? Um, after my first contest, I, I resolved that I wanted to try to get into the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest. Um, and I talked to a couple guys at that contest, at, at the Corned Beef and Cabbage Contest, and they kind of were mostly discouraging uh, about it and saying how difficult it was to qualify. And so I knew I had to work a little hard at that point. Um, and when, as I got involved in trying to qualify for Nathan's, that was my next contest was a qualifier in, uh, I think Long Island, uh, or maybe Hartford, I can't remember, but, um, yeah, it was Hartford. And, uh, I was disappointed by how I did. And I, and I, I thought, well, but I also wanted to get, it made me want it even more. And so it was almost at that point that I was like, well, I have to try now. I have to work a little hard at this. And so I started to try a little harder. And then as that was not enough, I started to try a little harder. And it was kind of like, you know, the the proverbial frog that boils in the the water that, you know, doesn't realize it. I was becoming more and more competitive as I was doing that and just getting more attached to this idea of of becoming good. Mm -hmm. And then 
um, I went to a contest in, in Buffalo, New York. It was a wings contest uh, for Labor Day. And I kind of surprised everyone, including myself. And I finished fourth there. And I thought, wow, I just beat a lot of guys that are ranked and that are considered to be really good eaters. And so I think at that point, I was like, all right, you know, I got to I gotta give this a shot. I saw all the opportunities that, that would come uh, the way of, of eaters if they were good. And I thought, well, I want those opportunities for myself too. And so I started to regard it as um, like a vehicle for doing interesting things and going interesting places and having, you know, really unique experiences. Um, I didn't have a nickname until I think that fall of 2004 um, after Buffalo, uh, which was my third or fourth, I think my fourth contest. Then I we had a cannoli contest in New York, and that's where I think I was given a nickname by George Shea, um, who was chairman of the uh, of Major League Eating. And I had always thought to myself, I don't want to give myself a nickname. I want to earn a nickname. And so I waited until I got one, and he decided to call me Eater X. What do you think that culture is around competitive eating? Or Obviously, nicknames are a thing. Yeah, I, I think you need to have one. Um, it just, you know, it's first of all, it's fun. It's, you know, it's kind of like being a kid or something. Um, but, you know, second of all, I think it's good for, for people, the fans. There aren't a lot of fans of it. I mean, it's a, kind of a niche uh, sport. But, uh, you know, it's nice for them to, you know, to have a nickname to call you. And um, But most guys, I think, they just, they just give it to themselves. And I, I've just always thought that a nickname is kind of like respect and kind of like an IRA contribution and that it has to be earned. Um, and so that's why I waited on mine, just it was my own standard of what, you know, of how it should come about. And it wasn't just the name. You you took it to a level where you started painting your face. It, it really became a whole personality. Yeah, that was something that I did from day one. Um, my first contest, I thought, well, I want to go there and I want to have fun. And I want people, maybe they'll remember me. Uh, just for this one thing. And so I had, in college, I had started painting my face when I would go to sporting events and I would heckle and just have fun. And, um, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed painting my face. I enjoyed kind of getting psyched up for what was to come. And so when I was doing the eating thing, I was like, well, I'm going to incorporate that into this event because that was enjoyable for me. And so it was just another way to sort of stretch out the fun and, and, uh, and so I painted it and then I went there and people responded really well to it. They thought it was cool. And, uh, and when I went to a second event, I was like, well, I got to do this again because I enjoyed it and people enjoyed it. And then I got there and they remembered me. And I, I don't think they would have remembered me if I'd shown up, you know, without all that stuff on my face. <laughs> and it came to a point, you mentioned that there were not a whole lot of resources or not a whole lot of knowledge out there about how to best train or prepare. Um, but obviously for you, it became a little bit more methodical a little bit more thoughtful is there like competitive is there a competitive eating bible out there is what what resources do you end up looking at if you're trying to maximize your ability in in this area in the early days we would just ask each other and there were a couple newspaper articles that if you googled things you would maybe come across like one or two pointers um the one that we would always come across was like chug a gallon of water um, and that was kind of, and then some guys would say, well, I eat a lot of cabbage to prepare or a lot of watermelon. And that was all we had. And, um, there was, a, about the time that I was starting shortly after, uh, Joey Chestnut and another guy, Pat Bertoletti, uh, joined the eating league. And so 
the three of us were really, really interested in pushing our bodies and, and trying to get better uh, as quickly as we could. And Joey hit upon, he, he took the, the water training to a different level. And because of my friendships with them, you know, I would learn what they were doing. And if I had a breakthrough or discovered something, I would tell them. And so we became, you know, pretty, pretty good at things pretty quickly. Um, I always thought, you know, that it was something that we shouldn't tell people for a couple of reasons. I thought, one, we don't know how, how good this is for our bodies. And so we don't really want to get other people uh, to the point where they're hurting themselves. And two, why are we going to teach these guys how to beat us? You know, and so I was sort of, you know, telling them, hey, guys, let's just kind of keep this between the, th the three of us. And um they weren't very good at keeping the secret and so this got out and uh and it became just this thing where you know once a certain amount of people knew about it you just couldn't control you know the sharing of information beyond that and so now everyone knows about it and uh so you got guys that are everybody in the the, the league is chugging water chugging water and then puking it back up because if you keep it down you're gonna essentially drown yourself from within and so that's you know, I don't know that that's a healthy way of doing things in life, but it's probably better. You can't if you chug three gallons of water and keep it down, you you are gonna you are gonna die. If you chug it and puke it up, you may just hurt yourself. And, and uh, so now that information is everywhere, and guys that want to be competitive eaters, most of them will train and get pretty good before they even show up to a contest. So so it looks like these newcomers are amazing. When in fact, what they did was they just got good behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And, I, yeah, I mean, when I told <laughs> anybody that I was talking to a retired um, competitive eater, definitely one of the first things that they were curious about was what is that training um, process like, either in a couple months leading up to a competition or a couple days. And I, I totally get it. It's, uh, it's kind of like a magician never revealing their tricks. But would you at all be okay with, like, kind of, loosely discussing what once you perfected um your I guess method if you could like kind of vaguely talk about what yeah, how you're approaching yeah I mean now the information's out there so it's you know I don't even I don't even mind talking about it but yeah I mean basically every day I would uh chug water I would you know by the end of my career I was doing about three and a half gallons of water and I would just pour it off into these giant cups that I got from you know convenience stores um, and I would chug them as fast as I could, which was just a couple of minutes. And then I would throw it all back up and, um, I would do that year round. So I did that for 11 or 12 years. Um, at first I was just doing it once a day. Then I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'll make better gains if I do it twice a day. Mm -hmm. Um, if I had, uh, a contest coming up, it was every once in a while I do it three times a day. Um, and that was my training. Other guys, I would sometimes practice with the food, but I didn't like to practice with food because mm -hmm. it just thought, one, it was expensive, and two, it was mm -hmm. uh, the, the trauma of throwing up a solid versus a liquid mm -hmm. is, is, a lot, is a lot worse. Um, and I, to practice with the food, you really have to have someone there that can save you if you start choking, although that's not a given that they'll be able to save you. Um, and I was often in the position of having to train by myself, which I didn't feel safe doing. But I would practice for hot dogs with the food, and I would do about 10, you know, maybe, uh, depended. At first, just a couple a year, uh, and then when I got really into it, I did about the most, it was 10 practices per year. And I would basically cook as many hot dogs as I thought I could eat, and then a couple extra, and I would simulate the contest in my apartment. And uh, 
other guys were doing that too. I, I think Joey at one point did, you know, I don't know if it was like 15 or 20 practices a year. Pat Berletti was doing, you know, that, that many as well, like twice a week for a long time. Um, and so that was how we got good. It was just the repetition and, and also the stretching of the stomach. Uh, Joey takes it a step further and does a lot of stretching exercises, and muscle strengthening exercises. He's really pioneered new things. But um, yeah, it was just a lot of just chugging water and stretching your stomach and puking it back up. Mm -hmm. And that build capacity and capacity is really the key to competitive eating. You know, you folks might be up there with like elite gymnasts when it comes to putting your body (laughs) through the ringer. It's, you know, it's scary when I look back on it. I did a documentary for National Geographic, and it's really the reason why I ended up quitting in the end, uh, although it took many years for it to, to sink in. But these doctors, they, they studied my stomach at a hospital for three days, and they had never seen a competitive eater before. They'd never really known what a guy did to train for it, and I didn't even tell them half the things I did. But they concluded from, you know, just talking to me and watching me and studying the stomach that we were doing things to our bodies that could lead to a condition called gastroparesis, which is paralysis of the stomach. And it's just, it's a miserable way to live because you can't digest things and you can't eat things properly after that. And, you know, it's not, the stomach is, it's involuntary muscle. So if you go out and you tear your bicep, they just, they stitch it up, you rehab it and you have motion. If you, you know, ruin an involuntary muscle, there's nothing you can do to get it, back up and running here it's just like a lifeless sack that is gonna you know that you're gonna put food into and then the food can't get out of there so all you can do is drink liquid and so that's you know eventually that's why i quit but yeah we were doing that to our bodies and and, uh you know you're when you're stretching uh your stomach that's supposed to be you know maybe hold a liter of food in a normal person and you're stretching it and training it to do 14 times that amount, you know, who knows what you're doing to it in the long run. And it's not like you have to kill it in one day, but the cumulative effect of all that training can, I think, and the doctors think can be really, you know, catastrophic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You talk about, um, yeah, being a retired athlete and this idea of, Obviously, you've worked you've worked out so much and done so many good things for your body. I'm talking about traditional sports here. Yeah, um, yeah. You do so many good things for your body and, and kind of have this healthy lifestyle. Yes, certainly you hurt your, you know, you, I'm sure professional athletes, I, I know professional athletes in reading the news and stuff, um, kind of succumb to a lot of really horrible things as they age you know whether it's arthritis or you know if you think about concussions but you you do right you kind of wonder the balance between all the good things that you did do as a uh, elite athlete but for you guys it's like there is no um there's no benefit not I don't want to yeah, say exactly. yeah it's no, like you're, you're, right. you're it's you're having the toll of all that without like the oh yeah but I am doing sprints and I am right you know eating healthy <laughs> yeah you're I mean yeah if you're a, a soccer player or you know a baseball player at least your training is getting you in better shape mm-hmm. you know it's good for your heart uh so if there's a trade-off if you know if you end up with knee pain in, in your, your future it did do something that was good for you as well. So there's a trade-off there. For us, there was no physical benefit to anything that we were doing. Um, you know, the only benefits were really like sort of the the psychological yeah. rewards of doing well and the financial rewards of doing well. 
there was no physical benefit to anything we were doing. And so I think that's, that also makes it a bad idea. You talk about the psychological benefits and how you really were, you loved this, this fun element, um, about competing. And I just wanted to circle back to that. Any, any stories you'd like to share where maybe you were kind of basking in this glow of like, I'm in, I'm in flow, you know, athletes talk about being in flow. You know, I just, I always just, I loved doing well, and not every day was a good day on the, the, the eating circuit, but I really loved um, working towards a goal every day, um, so I was training every day, and every day I had a purpose, and that purpose didn't have to be very important to anybody else, but to me it was important, and uh, it didn't, it wasn't like it took up a lot of my day, um, I would, you know, training would take, you know, 15 minutes or so. Uh, so if I did that twice, that is a half hour of my day, but it was, it was fun to be working towards something and to be doing these concrete steps that I could see, you know, paying off in, in the results that I was getting. Um, and then sometimes, you know, you would just go out there and, and, uh, everything seemed to click and it was just, it was a really rewarding and exciting experience to get out there on the 4th of July at Nathan's (laughs) on Coney Island and, you know, to, that was my goal originally, and to, to get there and to get to a point where I was not only just there, but I was doing really well, finishing second place a couple of times, and you know, there's twenty thousand people out there, and and then friends reach out to you later on in the day via text and say, "Hey, I saw you, great job." You know, that was just a, it was a really exciting and really rewarding, and, and just a special feeling to. Um, and as I look back on it too, you know, some t- like to think that I I did this weird thing, and and I have some friendships that I'll. You know, and some strange bonds with people that I'll always have. That's also a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, re- I really enjoyed it. It certainly was one of the greatest adventures that I'll probably ever have <laughs> in my life. And so I'm, I'm grateful for it as long as there turn out not to be any any problems in the future. I know we'll have to do like a follow up when you're like yeah. 70. <laughs> right, yeah. That'll change how I feel for sure if I have problems. <laughs> Uh, talking about those second place finishes, you know, I think they've done studies that say in the Olympics that those silver medalists have higher rates of depression. And, uh, I kind of want to compare it to, yeah, Nathan's coming in second place to Joey Chestnut. What was it like to, to come that close? Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard for sure that like fourth place finishers, when they return home from the Olympics, people are always like, oh, one more spot and you would have had a medal. It's like, Mm -hmm, oh man, mm -hmm. you finished fourth. That's great. Uh, (laughs) Second felt pretty good. I mean, certainly it would have been the best thing. It would have felt amazing to win that contest. Um, but second, I also think of as being, uh, it's it's pretty awesome. And uh, so, you know, you certainly like the, you, when you finish second, you're getting a lot less money and you're getting a lot less attention. So there's it's a huge step down in terms of, you know, the, the benefit of, of winning. Like if you win that thing, the stated prize is ten thousand dollars, but really the value of it is a hundred thousand dollars because of what you get in appearance fees throughout the year. Um, whereas if you finish second, you get five thousand dollars, and maybe you can generate another five or ten thousand in appearance fees. So mm-hmm. it's really you know it's a huge step down, but but it was still a thrill because I don't know, it just it just felt big. It was big, um, and you don't have to win it to you know you don't have to win something to feel like a winner or to feel like you won. Yeah, really. The not that I know the, what the biggest stage is, but it feels like for me as as an outsider that Nathan's is the biggest stage. It is the Olympics. It is for competitive eating for sure. Yeah, there's nothing like if you. I mean, I've always thought if you don't make it there, you're not really. 
he's just not really an elite eater. And, uh, you know, you have to be good at, you have to be good at hot dogs to be considered a great competitive eater. Who came up with is just not on my sheet right now, but I think the grossest thing for everybody in watching Nathan's is the the dipping of the bun. And who came up with that technique? That was um brought. It was a Japanese innovation. So there were a couple of Japanese eaters that were coming over um, <laughs> in the the late nineties, and so it started that way. I think the dunking, but. Uh, Kobayashi was the course, one, right. I believe, that started separating the meat and the bread, mm. uh, which made things even better because when you're dunking, when you're if you're not dunking it, first of all, then you got to pick up the cup. And so it's this kind of wasted effort, wasted motion. Whereas if you're dunking things, the bread, the bun should absorb all the liquid that you need to swallow. So you should never have to pick up your cup. And if you're separating the meat and the bread, then you can be eating something while you're dunking the thing that is going to then wash the other thing down. So you're, you're not wasting any time that way. So it's a lot more efficient. Um, and it's actually good. I gotta be honest. I, I, uh, I never minded it, but once I started using lemonade to dunk my, my, the buns into, which was sort of a palate cleanser, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, you could give me a sandwich to this day and tell me to dunk it in something. And I have no problem. It could be soda, lemonade, beer. It doesn't matter. It also, it does seem safer, right? Like you're not, I, I think about having like a dry, yeah. you're stuffing like a dry bread in your mouth and having liquid to help that go down. It seems safer. Yeah, it, it's very much safer. I've always thought of liquid as being like kind of the, it's it's crucial to having a safe contest. It doesn't guarantee it's safe, but if you, like I, I've, I've heard of some contests where they said no liquids and I've always told people that's dangerous. The, to have no liquid means things can get stuck. They, mm-hmm. They're too light. And they're not going to slide down your throat. And uh, one time they tried to limit us at a contest. They were getting fed up with how many cups the top eaters were demanding for our contest. Uh, and so they tried to tell, it was a qualifier, and they tried to tell me that, you know, oh, you only get two cups today. And I said, this is this is dangerous. I said, I can't do this. I'm not going to compete. You know, you're, mm-hmm. if, I'm not going to choke because you're worried about how the table looks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the water is critical. Dunking is critical. And, you know, if you eat the... The, the bread dry and then you pour water on top of it you're not really soaking the bread so it's still not safe you really have to dunk it getting to the to the end of your career uh you foreshadowed it a bit um i believe you announced your retirement uh right before uh, the day before nathan's uh july 3rd 2016 via twitter saying that i've wondered how long-term stupid competing is for my health i can't ignore that feeling anymore why it sounds like the seeds ha- were planted and were kind of sprouting. Why 2016? What what really clicked for you then? There were a couple of things. Um, so when I look going back to that documentary that I did, I don't know if that maybe it was around 2008 or something like that. And it took many years for the message from those doctors to sink in. For at first, I just thought, well, these guys don't really know anything. Um, because they've never seen a stomach like mine and they're only hypothesizing and so that was that just you know that's just not smart to say that because there's still doctors that specialize in that part of the body and so it's true they didn't they've never seen a stomach like mine and they were hypothesizing but their hypotheses should be you know uh, taken much more seriously than, than mine should be so after a few years that started to sink in that I had been young and stupid. And um, 
also I would notice things about my stomach. Like I could, if I chugged water, let's say it's Thursday and I chug water, which of course I would. And then maybe later on that day I had a, a salad or something. And then the next day I chug water and again, I throw it up. I would see salad in that water. And I thought, this is weird, man. This is 24 hours and a stupid piece of like lettuce mm. is still in my stomach. Mm. And that kind of jived with what these doctors had said about the stomach slowing down and not digesting efficiently. And I knew other eaters were having the exact same, you know, things we would joke about it, but it started to bother me because I started to see, all right, this, this just doesn't seem right. And, um, the consequences of me being wrong about this are much greater than, you know, the reward if I'm, if I'm right, like if I'm proven right, that oh yeah, you're fine. You know, you're never going to hurt yourself. Uh, that's great. I would love that. But if I'm proven wrong, my whole life sucks, you know, after that. So I started, to, it started to sink in a lot and um, I started to question what I was doing and I wasn't able to, to enjoy training as much and I wasn't able to push myself as much. I was kind of like a race car driver who is scared to go fast. Um, and so when I didn't want to train as much, my results suffered just a tiny bit. And I started to think, well, I, I don't want to be doing this if I can't be my best. And so then I started started training a little bit less and my results suffered a little bit less and, or a little bit more. And, and so um, I finally, my contract was expiring in 2016 and I thought to myself, you know, I just got to end this. There's just, if I'm not enjoying this and if I think it's dangerous and then those are the two most important things. Um, so I just thought, okay, I'm done. And, uh, I, you know, I wish it hadn't come to that. I wish I had always believed it was safe. I wish it were safe. If someone could tell me it were safe um, and they knew that it were safe 100%, I would 100% go right back to doing what I was doing because I did enjoy it. But it was that fear and just that intellectual honesty that brought me to the point of thinking that I should quit. Mm -hmm. And I'm, it happened on your own terms. You weighed the risks and the rewards. Um, but still, that doesn't take away. We, we talk about in this show a lot. Just it's, it's hard to leave something behind that you gave a lot of time and energy to, that you loved, um, sacrificed for. Was there a sadness for you and you mentioned you really loved kind of the structure um and the fun of it and leaving that behind how was that for you yeah I mean at first it was it was all right at first I was pretty you know pretty relieved to be done I think because I had a lot of anxiety that I built up over over what I might be doing to myself so um I tried to savor that last Nathan's experience you know I took a lot of time to just enjoy every moment uh you know, when, when everyone else was sort of huddled in the back waiting for the announcements and the stage show to get underway, I was out in the crowd walking around, you know, climbing up in the media bleachers, asking if I could look through various camera lenses, you know, going up on top of the Nathan's rooftop and looking down, just trying to get as much of that experience as I could so I wouldn't forget it. Um, and initially quitting was, was nice because I didn't have to train. I didn't have to put my body through that. Um, and I also didn't have to, like, the stress of of a competition, you know, competition can be really fun, but at the same time, it's, it is a, a state of anxiety in a way. Um, and I don't think that's always good. It's like why the alpha, the alpha male in a, in a, in the wild doesn't live as long as the beta males. I don't think because the guy's always stressed out, always has the adrenaline going. And, um, and so I felt that way with competition too. It was good to get rid of that. And 
But over time, I also began to miss the excitement of the contest. You know, the I missed again what I had long ago enjoyed, which was the preparation, the, that sort of commitment to something, that to commit to a goal, and the the gradual improvement. I began to miss those things, and um, I also developed a sense of like, what if? You know, what if I hadn't um, kind of eased up on my training those last few years instead of getting just a little bit worse every year? What if I'd gotten a little bit better every year? And of course, I, you know, I believe I would have if I'd worked hard at it. So that what if became a more powerful, um, you know, question in my mind. And it's also hard. It's just hard to find something that, that you really, that you really care about and get excited about. It's a gift when you do find it. And when you get rid of it or you lose it, it's hard to find a new thing. It's hard to find something that feels big. Um, and so that's something I've kind of had a hard time with. I get why athletes have a hard time you know, moving on. Some of them have a hard time because they don't plan for their futures or they just identify entirely with it. That wasn't the case for me. But but for me, it was, yeah, This it's hard finding something that, that you care about and that feels big. Yeah. Did you watch um, the, I don't know, our other eating contest televised besides Nathan's. I just was wondering if you watched as a retiree Nathan's hot dog eating contest and was it weird to be on the outside looking in maybe that year later or those two years later, whatever it was? I haven't been able to watch it. I, I haven't wanted to. I mean, I, I've been curious about the results, so I, I'm always aware of them and, and I couldn't hide from them if I, if I tried. People text me and, and tell me what happened. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really bring myself to watch it because I do miss it, and you know I'm a little envious of the experience. I think if I were involved in it in a different way, I would feel differently about it. So I I tried to get involved, um, had discussions with ESPN about uh, being in the booth and providing color commentary, and they were on board. And then mysteriously, um, I think the organization actually uh, quashed the idea. So I was no longer in those plans. Um, and that would have been a way to feel good about being involved. But I, I don't feel good just watching it, you know, when I have no involvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really um, the perennial question that a lot of retired athletes face is, yeah, do you do you watch your old team play? <laughs> do, you yeah. do you coach? It's hard to find that balance of kind of honoring the fact that that was and it is a big part of who you are, were, um, while also moving on and trying to, I guess, protect your head and uh, the growth that you're trying to do as an individual. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's even harder when you know you could still do it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, if I were a 60-year-old former football player, I, I know I, I would just get killed if I went on the field. <laughs> You know, but as a 43-year-old competitive eater, and you can eat at any age, we, we think, because they're, you know, then uh, it's, it's, it's hard because I know I could be there. And uh, I know you did the amazing race. What you, Your partner was Joey Chestnut. Um, yeah. <laughs> how was that? That was back in 2017. Did it feel, well, that was incredible. Did it feel, uh, you mentioned kind of finding things that excite you and like that that can be a gift did that uh, it, give you a, a high it absolutely did yeah it was that was an incredible experience um and it, it's you know it kind of goes it illustrates what i was talking about earlier about you know when i recognized that competitive eating could could take me places and give me experiences that that 
would be hard to come by normally. And, and so competitive eating and my friendship with Joey uh, made that possible. And I really, you know, owe Joey a lot for, you know, bringing me along on that because he was the one that those producers wanted. And then it was his choice on who to bring along. So I can't thank him enough for, for that experience. And yeah, that was absolutely something that was, it was so much fun to look forward to, to anticipate, to prepare for. Uh, and it felt, it felt like I was an eater again for a while. And, and uh, there were several months of that. So I just loved that, those several months. And it actually kind of came along at a time too, when I was really kind of down about like, just about what I was doing in life. I was like, what am I doing in life? I hadn't figured something out. And, uh, so then to have that to look forward to, uh, for, for a few months and to do it, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, besides social distancing and being mostly on lockdown, uh, what have you been up to? What do you have in the works? What are your hopes for the future for Tim? Well, you know, I'm it's still, I am question. still trying to figure it's that out. It's a very light yeah. question. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to figure that out. I mean, I've, I, you know, I, I was, I've been working in, or I had been working in a restaurant for a long time. I, I was, That's funny. Yeah, I was working at a pizzeria because I thought I wanted to open a pizzeria someday. And I don't want to open a pizzeria any day, and I have quit that job. But that was kind of my side job when I was more dedicated to competitive eating. You know, it was very flexible mm -hmm. to have that kind of a job. So I determined a couple of years ago that I just needed some time to for myself. And so I resolved I was going to take a year off. And so, so I quit the restaurant. Um, and I moved to South Korea thinking that, you know, I would take a year and just study a language and, um, not put any pressure on myself and, and see, you know, what inspired me and, and what directions I was pulled in and go from there. Cause I, you know, when I had first moved to New York, I had no idea what I was doing either. And it turned into a, you know, wonderful experience. And so I thought, well, I'm going to give myself that same kind of opportunity, go somewhere where I don't know anybody, where I don't know what to do and just see what what I fall into mm -hmm. and so that's what I planned for myself COVID obviously you know interrupted that and postponed it but um, when this is all over it's very likely that I'll go back to South Korea because I, it's, a, it's a country that I enjoy but I, I have some time to think about it and so if I decide I want to go somewhere else instead then I'll do that um, so Europe is always on the table Australia is on the table but I think I'm still going to give myself that year off to one, just to enjoy myself and, and have no pressures, and two, to have all the time in the world to figure out a new direction. Well, yeah, I really hope that the rest of the world decides to let us pass their borders sooner <laughs> rather than later. But yeah, we'll we can't see. go anywhere. <laughs> We're blacklisted. Um, it's crazy. I ask most of my guests at the, at the end of this um, – you know, whether it's sport or not, we all kind of come to these inflection points where we're asked to, to transition, to, again, leave something behind, walk away, embark on something else. And I guess, do you have any advice for, for when those inflection points come, things to consider, any wise words? I think, I think you just have to follow your, your heart. Um, and I can't say that I that that advice comes from successfully transitioning to something new. But I, I can say that that's how I got into competitive eating in the first place. I, I followed my heart and my instincts. Um, you know, I was trading stocks and I wasn't happy. And so I tried something and that made me happier. 
And so I put my energy in that and I had a wonderful 12 year adventure. So that was honestly the first time in my life I think I had ever actually followed my heart and done what seemed impractical when there was something practical that I, I had, I could have done instead. And it was a great decision in my opinion. So I think if that worked for me the first time, then that's what I should try the second time. And I think it's advice that it can't hurt you. You know, worst case, you waste a little bit of time, but you know, you can always go back and do the practical thing. You can always go back and do the thing that you didn't really care that much about in the first place. Thank you to Tim Janice for coming on to the podcast. And thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.